WERSA.org. The time is 10 o'clock on the dot, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther, of the League of Women Voters, is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the seventh program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about civil discourse. Can we still do it? We'll talk about civil discourse, Look what it looks like, why it seems to be so hard right now, how we can practice it ourselves, and what we can do to encourage it in our leaders and public servants here in Maine. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today, and let me introduce our guests. Joining us by phone today is Thomas Spath. Thomas is the co-founder of the Institute for Civility in Government. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you very much, Anne. Also on the phone today, I think, is Matt Modell. Matt is Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Hello, Matt. Are you there? Hi. Good morning. Good morning. And joining us live here in the studio, we have Andrew Rudolevich. Andrew is the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you all so much for joining us. Cyberbullying, death threats, personal attacks, physical violence, it all seems to have reached kind of a fever pitch in our politics right now. People on both sides are pretty angry and dug in. Is political discourse really more uncivil now than ever before? Does extreme partisanship play a role in that? What does civil discourse really look like, and should we aspire to do better? How can we demand more of our leaders? Let's get the conversation started today with a little bit of historical background. What's the context, Andrew? Is it really worse now than ever before in our history? Well, I think the short answer is no. Uh, American politics have always been raucous. Uh, I think if you go back to the founding of the country, you know, people argued about uh, whether we needed a constitution, what should be in the constitution. Uh, certainly uh, fans of the musical Hamilton uh, will note the feuding that began among the people who were on the same side even with regards to the creation of a national government and sort of the arguments over the size of that government, what its scope ought to be. Uh, you know, that starts very early. And so even though you know, the one thing that all the, the framers of the Constitution seem unanimous about is that uh, they hate the idea of political parties. Uh, as soon as there's a government, they start political parties. So you have the Federalist Party, you have uh, the Jeffersonian uh, Republican Democratic Party starting, again, really uh, in Congress first, but with the first Congress. And, uh, you know, that proves to be uh, something that spills over into the public domain. If you look at the newspapers of that era, they're run by the parties. They're really nasty. Uh, you know, George Washington, you know, the closest thing to a saint in American political history, you know, is uh, ripped apart by Jeffersonian papers very early on. And, and of, then, course, of course, there was violence on the floor of the Congress right before the Civil War, right? Oh, sure. Uh, 
there's uh, some interesting research, actually, on just how much violence over time there has been. And yeah, the Civil War, uh, I think we'd have to say that is a time of more divisiveness than today. Again, uh, uh, very emotional, very angry debates. And of course, that leads to the, the deaths of you know, anywhere from 500,000 to a million Americans. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's, that is a big deal. And so we shouldn't, you know, in today's uh, overwrought atmosphere, uh, lose fa- track of the fact that uh, American history has been uh, often angry, sometimes violent, um, uh, but that we have had an ability to summon what Lincoln at the end of the Civil War calls the better angels of our nature. And I'm, of course, hopeful we'll be able to get back to that these days. Matt or Tomas, I mean, this is it's certainly a little bit more divisive time, I'll reveal my age here, than I remember since the Vietnam War era. What's making it hotter now than it has been in a generation, would you say? Who wants well, to go first? One of the emerging issues is that certainly Andrew is right that uh, civility is uh, typically more of an aberration in American politics than uh, not. But the one, one issue is that we've segregated ourselves into these red and blue communities, and we we listen to news, we consume news that is very congenial to our beliefs, and very rarely are we having conversations with people that think differently or reading about. Uh, different viewpoints from our own. So we've created these echo chambers, and what this does is it kind of leads us to become more and more extreme in our particular views, and we have seen rising affective polarization. This is how much I like my party and people in my party relative to people in the other party. So people have always liked people in their own group more than people in other groups, but what we've really seen over the last couple of decades is this decrease in how much we uh, like the other side. So we, we really like our party and people that share our beliefs, and we've become increasingly nasty towards people that uh, disagree with our viewpoints and uh, think differently and vote differently from us. Sure, and I can support uh, what you're saying and, and just share that practically our Institute for Civility and Government back in the 1990s, we led legislative seminars to Washington, D.C., from the Houston, Texas area. And um, we really reached out to people on both sides of the political aisle to to go on our trips. And one of the things that we learned in the 1990s is that as soon as the discussion, as soon as we reached uh, the topic of let's make a decision of what we as a group were going to say about issue X and Ring B, when there was disagreement in the room, no one could talk to each other. And we realized that there was a problem in our society because people don't know how to discuss issues with somebody from the other side of the aisle. Huh. I wonder... Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a problem that we have. Yeah. I mean, I wonder what responsibility for this sort of angry talk radio plays, Rush Limbaugh and some of the others. I mean, it's not only him. Now, almost the entire um, AM dial is talk radio, and a lot of it is very angry. I I don't remember that, you know, growing up. I don't remember that, except maybe in the last 20, 20 years. Was was that a factor? Where did that come from, and why has it become so popular? You have something to say to that, Andrew? Well, I was going to say it's popular. I mean, it, it's there, and it's profitable because it's popular. So there is a demand for it. I mean, when you and I, I fear I were growing up, AM radio was bad, bad uh, music, right? It was right. the... Uh, uh, 
sitting on the school bus listening to well, in the pretty, farm reports uh, where I grew up, it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, with me, it was, uh, you know, AM, uh, you know, soft pop uh, yeah. as we drove to school. Um, but, you know, there wasn't much otherwise except the news station here and there. Um, but, you know, that, that model has been superseded. And so, uh, as was uh, just mentioned, you know, the rise of social media and the ability to sort of pick and choose your own news stream, that's pretty new. Um, you had the, the decline of uh, what you might call – well, the decline of broadcasting, right, where if you were watching TV and there was something political on, pretty much everybody was watching it. The president, for example, could command a fairly broad audience. Uh, you know, you had three, four, five channels uh, depending where you were. Uh, these days, right, if you don't want to watch politics, you don't have to watch it at all. You can watch bass fishing 24 hours a day. Uh but if you're a fan of politics, right, you can watch and not only watch, but you can tune into your team's right. channel. So uh, and, you know, you had – and clearly I think with the rise of AM radio as, you know, sort of music and other programming, you know, wasn't particularly commercially viable anymore. Uh, you know, clearly a market was met, uh, Rush Limbaugh and others. Uh, and then, of course, with the cable television, sort of the same thing, niche programming, uh, serving uh, those with conservative and then liberal beliefs over time. And so, you know, what you might call narrow casting. Right, yep. I think has really taken hold, and uh, you know the internet has only exacerbated that. The ability to sort of amplify your anger on Twitter or Facebook or where have you, you know, is at a greater stage. But, uh, and that seems that seems like a very noticeable feature is the anger. Mm-hmm. And um, Matt, I wonder about the extent to which sort of angry talk radio has normalized that angry voice. What do you think? Well, I don't think it's restricted to AM talk radio. I, I think that might have been the kind of the breeding ground, but at this point, uh, we, we have many narrowcast uh, cable stations that cater to very specific political views and podcasts that are even more specific. So I think that it's it certainly broadened out beyond just AM radio, but I think that these different outlets that cater very specifically to people on the, on the left or on the right, uh, they, they, they do kind of thrive off of promoting this emotional processing of political information and uh, bashing the other side and maybe boasting about our own side's victories in a way that is not exactly truthful all the time. Um, So I I think that that certainly contributes to it. And then one thing that we know is just from basic learning uh, principles in psychology, and you can see some of this in political science, too, that we take cues from actors. We take cues from leaders and authority figures and kind of respectful, respected individuals. So if we see our favorite television show host or our favorite radio show host yelling at somebody else, we say, oh, that's, that's an acceptable form of conduct. Uh, and, and now we, we have elected leaders that, that excoriate people and make fun of them and uh, that, that could be taken as a cue and we learn from them. And we might be modeling that uncivil, nasty behavior. So, I mean, I wonder, I'm wondering about that from your point of view, Thomas. Have you seen that normalization of an angry voice contributing to incivility in your work? Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think it's, um, it, it, it lives itself out in the way we live and where we choose to live because uh, we are living in more and more polarized communities. Uh, and therefore we don't really have to deal with people that think in a different manner in, in our lifestyle. And I think that uh, we're electing 
uh, more and more polarized uh, individuals to go to Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. And I see that uh, dramatically. Uh, There's only one state in our nation, and that's the state of Iowa, that sends centrist-type thinkers to Washington, D.C. Almost Mm -hmm. everybody else, including the state of Texas, we we send extremists to Washington. I mean, I think Maine has a couple of moderates there, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'll claim well, that for our state for a minute. Uh, um, yeah, but, but the moderates are leading. They're, 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 they're disappearing. Yeah, it's hard. You know, I'm wondering whether, you know, incivility causes fear and anger or whether fear and anger cause incivility. Like, what's the chicken and what's the egg here? Do you have a thought on that, Matt? Certainly. It's, it's a reciprocal process. So when... I am more extreme in my belief that I'm going to become more angry at the other side. And like the more that we kind of are entrenched in our political tribe, uh, the easier it is for us to kind of fuel that uh, instability and the anger that we have on both sides. So I, I would hesitate to say, oh, it's, I'm angry, so that's making me uncivil towards the other side. But I think there's an interplay there where... If, I, if I'm very different from the other side or I don't know anything about the other side, I'm going to be more angry at the, other, at the things that they're doing. And, of course, anger provokes anger. So once one side gets angry, then the other side gets even angrier. I can see that happening, right. too. It, it's kind of a, an outrage spiral, if you will. Yeah. Do some players benefit? Is there a provocation of this kind of anger with strategic intent, um, you know, are some actors on our political stage fueling anger because they think their political fortunes might benefit from it? Uh, sure, absolutely. No, this sure. is a, you know you don't uh, people who uh, people who uh, win political office tend to think that the the way that they got there was the right way to do it. And obviously, uh, we've had political actors having success uh, stoking these kinds of fuels, sort of drawing on uh, that well of sort of. Uh, well, sort of the primary base voters in each party who are angry uh, and have this sort of emotional overlay where they they see the other party not just as wrong on the issues, but in fact as morally suspect. And uh, dangerous. And arguably dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then the stakes are really high. So you have to show up. The other aspect, of course, is that our, you know, government has been relatively finely balanced in a partisan sense. We've had, you know, a couple years of uh, unified government uh, under the Democrats in 2009-10, under the Republicans right now, and of course, back earlier in the Bush administration. Uh, We've had a lot of divided government. And so, you know, it always seems in play. And if everything's in play, you know, if you could win the House or the Senate this time, uh, then, again, keeping up that sort of uh, stoked outrage is particularly important in a political sense. And so there is real incentive for these actors to, to keep doing that. Um, and we can maybe swing our way back to thinking about primary elections and how those have affected government because it was mentioned earlier you know, that we live in areas that are – Polarized, right? The big and, sort. Um, yeah, that's certainly part of it. And of course, uh, political actors, you know, through gerrymandering, uh, not at the Senate level, and we should come back to that maybe, but at the House level have, have worked hard to take advantage of that in an electoral sense. Yeah. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum this morning on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is civil discourse. Can we still do it? Our guests this morning are Thomas Spath, co-founder of the Institute for Civility and Government, Matt Modell, assistant professor of psychology at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and 
Andrew Rudolevich, the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government right here in Maine at Bowdoin College. Um, let's continue the discussion about incivility, polarization, and extreme partisanship. So, I mean, we talked about the big sort a little bit, how people tend to be congregating in communities, both intellectual and physical communities of like-minded individuals. But, um, Andrew, you just started talking about part about partisan gerrymandering and how much of that has led to extremism in our representation and then extremism in our civil discourse as well. Yeah, I mean, that too is a complicated process. There's plenty of people who would argue, you know, in my field of political science, that most of the polarization really is in the elected officials and then the choices that the public gets uh, as it thinks about its elections, right? So that if you look at public opinion in a broad sense, there is a more moderate base, certainly national public opinion, you know, on some of the issues that we think of as insoluble. you know, however, you know, when it comes to your time in the voting booth, right, it, when it comes to a primary election, those are the people who are the most firmly extreme. Uh, and so the choices they make wind up giving you two choices as a general election voter that are at each end of the political spectrum. So you don't really have a, a chance to uh, express your moderate view at the ballot box in the end. Uh, others argue that, in fact, well, no, they're getting extreme candidates because that's what they want. Um, but it all sort of does flow back. We were talking briefly earlier about the 1960s, you know, this sort of push towards more participation in government. And, uh, you know, especially the 1968 uh, Democratic National Convention, which ends in tear gas and rioting in Chicago, uh, you know, the nominee for the Democrats that year, Hubert Humphrey, who we think of as sort of a – Moderate. Uh, uh, well, as a, as a liberal, really. Right. Uh, he was certainly very uh, much in the forefront of civil rights in the 1940s, in fact. Um, but at the time, it was seen as sort of a sellout to President Johnson and a, a shill for the Vietnam War. And, uh, you know, so the anti-war activists uh, – you know, saw the whole process as illegitimate. Uh, you could argue they sort of got what they deserved. They got Richard Nixon, right, because they refused to vote for Humphrey. Uh, but nonetheless, you had a, uh, you know, a period of sort of uh, soul-searching, especially in the Democratic Party. Uh, how can we expand participation? How can we make the nomination process more legitimate? And, you know, opening up uh, the nomination process uh to primaries with basically anybody could uh, participate, you know, was the answer to that in the end. It wasn't the, exactly the intended answer, but that's where we wound up. And so, you know, I have this mass possibility of participation, but in fact, not that many people participate in primary elections. And that, too, skews the process. But I hear, I hear you saying, maybe I misunderstood, but I'll ask Matt to comment on this next, that uh, a drift towards direct popular election and a more populist um, <coughs> engagement is part of the recipe mm-hmm. for this. What do you think, Matt? I mean, the, this whole discussion about participatory and deliberative democracy is, is tricky because uh, there's some research out there that suggests that when we are having this kind of cool-headed deliberation, this conversation with people about issues, it becomes less interesting. There, there's something uh, alluring to uh kind of these arguments and these fights. It's, it's like the, the blockbuster films that we go see with lots of explosions. People are drawn to that. People really like it. Um, but at the same time, people say that they want more civility in government, and it's, it's tricky because we, we want this ideal of, of this civil conversation and this rational deliberation of, of these important issues but at the same time, we kind of feed into this. Our gut level 
uh, reactions to people that are different from us is, oh, you're you're crazy or you're evil or ignorant, and that's just not uh, a functional way for for democracy to, to operate. So to some extent, you're saying the excitement needs a few fireworks and needs a little strong language. So, I mean, is civility boring? Can we have strong views and passionate beliefs expressed in a civil way? Or is that uh, not even a possible recipe, Thomas? Well, we define the word civility as uh, claiming and caring for one's identity, needs, and beliefs without degrading somebody else's in the process. And what we mean by that is, uh, yes, you need to claim and care. And uh, and it's hard to claim and care sometimes when you uh, <laughs> uh, have a different opinion of somebody else and you're angry and, and, you, and you let some things out. Civility is hard work. It, it is it is uh, work that requires people to stay present and to work through issues. And yes, it is difficult. It's not easy to do it, but when it's done, it it, it produces good results. I mean, we're suggesting a, a little bit. I think that um, I, I don't want to say incivility, but excitable rhetoric and angry and passionately expressed views create excitement in politics and mobilize voters to participate. Um, on the other hand, when it leads people to wish for the death of their <laughs> opponents, I mean, we heard, you know, death threats, I wish you would die or whatever. I mean, when it leads to that or to physical violence, as that guy in Minnesota really, you know, attacked somebody, um, you know, what do we lose when it comes to that point? Who wants to jump in? Well, I, 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 I'll respond that, yes, I'm a very passionate guy, and, and, and I'm very upfront and honest with people about who I am and what I, what I believe and, and what I choose. And, and uh, I really enjoy it when I am passionately involved with somebody that's uh, on the other side of the aisle, shall we say, and is just as passionate right back to me. I think those are great conversations because they're learning experiences for all. What do you have to say, Matt, in terms of the balance between what we gain and what we lose by the kind of discourse that we're engaging in right now? Well, I, I think that we run the risk of <clears throat> silencing people with this growing instability. So if I'm afraid that somebody's going to yell at me or be mean to me or threaten my life, if I express my viewpoint that happens to be different from theirs, I'm going to be less likely to share my viewpoint. I'm, I'm going to further isolate myself. I'm going to surround myself with people that think the same as me so that I can satisfy my basic human needs of belonging and having social support and not having fear that somebody's going to attack me if I say how I feel about abortion or same-sex marriage or Black Lives Matter. I Correct. I, thinking back to times in American history where families would pack the wagon, pack a picnic, travel hours to see a political debate and view it as a form of high entertainment. Um, and I suspect that those political debates were, in a way, entertaining, but I'm not sure we would characterize them as uncivil. What do you think, um, Andrew? 
It's a good point. I mean, if you look back at sort of the heyday of organized political parties, and I think I would distinguish because today we have very strong partisanship, but the organized parties are not necessarily as strong as they used to be, um, partly because they've lost control over nominations, but partly because they've lost this sort of uh, factor where, you know, in the 1880s, right, if you were in a, a Plains town in Kansas or uh, Iowa, um, you know, you had nothing else to do. You know, and yeah. really, I mean, there's, you know, why did people, you know, radio, uh, when it's introduced, goes from 0% to 90% of households in about two years. I mean, it's a, you know, there's a huge transformation, a huge transformation as we get into the, you know, 20th century. But before that, yeah, I mean, there were these, uh, you know, torchlight parades and, you know, the, it was like the carnival coming to town. And so it was certainly emotional. Um, you know, if we look back at other periods of, you know, polarization as political scientists are able to measure it, and that's imperfect. But in Congress, certainly, you know, the Reconstruction era, that peak era of partisanship, when we had, by the way, really high voter turnout too, granted of, uh, you know, a, a lower proportion of the population was able to vote then. Uh, but you had very high turnout because the parties were really motivated to get people out. And one way they did that was through emotional appeals. And, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, uh, I guess it was uh, 1880 or 84, um, you know, James G. Blaine, the man from Maine, was, uh, you know, attacked because uh, the Democrats were the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion, <laughs> right? Uh, so, you know, the, the, the American political process, again, has always been messy and emotional, and that's how you get people interested. Um, but, you know, the flip side is, of course, that, uh, you know, the framers themselves were very nervous about popular democracy channeling through this uh, republic Right, and that's why we had, in a lot of ways, an indirect system of democracy set up. Whether it's through, you know, the Senate or the Electoral College, for that matter, um, and it's a you know, so sort of merging our you know what we think about as democratic legitimacy in the contemporary era, which includes a lot more people than it used to and needs to, uh, with the sort of clunky structure that the framers created uh, for an age which they assumed that elites effectively would run the show. Uh, is a different, uh, you know, we have to we have to work through that, and I think our national conversation is, is struggling with that right yeah. now. Yeah, what do you think, Matt? I mean, how do we make that civil discourse emotional, passionate, engaging, um, entertaining, um, attractive to people without having it wax over into angry, destructive, mean spirited? Yeah, I don't know what the correct answer is. This is something that. Uh, probably all of us are very passionate about. And I've, I've run many studies trying to get people to be more uh, civil and, and still engaged. I've even tried paying people to, to learn about the other side and, and converse with them. And they were giving up money, so that they didn't have to read a single paragraph about why somebody <laughs> would vote differently from them. And when I asked them, well, how much would you like talking to this person? they say, oh, well... It's somewhere between taking out the trash and going to the dentist. Really? So this, this is, people have very strong viewpoints of, of just how, how poorly these conversations would go. So I think that part of this might be civic education or, or something when we're, we're younger so that people know how to deal with difference and how, how to actually uh, interrogate the process as opposed to just assuming, oh, Anybody that doesn't agree with me is is somehow immoral or inferior. So I think that it probably goes back to education, but what that education looks like is something that we, we don't quite have a, a firm grasp on yet. 
Do you want to comment on that, Thomas? Sure. Our institute, um, we, um, uh, our main program is to sponsor congressional student forms, and this is when we invite a Republican and a Democratic member of Congress to go back home to their district and find a university campus that will provide a venue for uh, students to show up. And we have like a town hall meeting, but we have both sides represented in that room. And uh, these are very difficult. Oh, we lost our phone line. I think we'll keep trying to get that back. Meanwhile, Andrew and I will continue the conversation <laughs> we'll as step best into the we breach. can on our own. Um, so, Andrew, we started talking about, um, you know, why incivility or um, passionate, angry, engaged language is attractive to people. But, and then we started talking about what we lose by that. And um, I think Matt started to say something about people who get turned off <clears throat> and are afraid to participate or are afraid that their voices are not going to be heard if um, if the conversation gets too angry. And then I heard Matt say, you can't pay people to talk to people who they disagree with. <laughs> so, I mean, what do, what do you think? What do we lose in our civil life when it becomes so uncivil? Well, in a practical sense, we lose the ability to talk to half of the population of our country, which I think is a problem. Uh, you see, <clears throat> you know, the kind of, even in, you know, small town Maine, right? You see these divisions uh, where, you know, Somebody will wear a hat into a diner and other people will make fun of them or the other way around, right? And there's a, you know, a definite, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, being able to sort of work from the bottom up in a grassroots sense to change policy has been a real strength of American democracy over the years. And that is something we lose if we lose the ability to talk to each other even at the local level. Yep. Uh, and on the one hand, I don't mind if there's, you know, people yelling at each other on cable television. Um, I don't think it's particularly worthwhile uh, and I think maybe we pay too much attention to it. But most people are not that tuned in. You know, the ratings for even the Fox News or MSNBC that are, you know, relatively popular, um, you know, relatively is an important word, right? Because many more people are watching the Red Sox. Yeah, um, true. Uh, in their mediocre struggle towards the playoffs this year. Uh, or, <laughs> um, you know, but many, many more people are tuned into, you know, The Bachelor or to other popular entertainment options. You know, pop, pop, people like me who follow politics, you know, may tend to lose sight of, you know, sort of how peripheral to people's lives it is most of the time. Yep. Um, so, you know, if it's – that yelling is going on at the national level, fine. But it does bother me if at the local level we can't connect and if it's – sort of uh, spills over into our arguments over town council and school committee, you know, and if you have, you know, uh, you know I think we should be able to have nonpartisan conversations. Um, so, you know, like uh, like Matt was saying, you know, I think uh, a lot of us would like to be passionate about moderation. And yeah, that's I know. increasingly hard. <laughs> I know it's hard. But, 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 you know, I mean, it is happening at, at the local level. We had um, right here in Bar Harbor a very contentious warrant battle um, at their city level the last time, you know, some trying to ban cruise ships, some trying to regulate cruise ships, and, I mean, the two sides barely able to talk to each other. Um, we're going to have a, um, a meeting on Wednesday in person where some of the people who are trying to bridge that gap in Bar Harbor will be at Pat's Pizza on Wednesday, 
I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But, um, I mean, it is trickling down. You know, yeah. this is a form of acceptable behavior now, angry yeah. and tone and um, and bitter and confrontational. Yeah, and I think one of the things that uh, that we want generally is, is uh, things to move fast. We've kind of lost patience, I think. You know, we can now go online and buy a car in 12 minutes if we want to, yeah. right? Um, there's no uh, – yeah, I think the uh, one of the issues with political – the political process generally is it's meant to be slow. Uh, Max Weber called it the slow boring of hard <laughs> boards. You know, this was in the 19th century. Uh, you know, it's – you know, it takes a lot of time, right, for people to come together and talk about whether it's cruise ships or education funding or, you know, uh, zoning issues at the local level. Uh, and certainly at the national level when you're talking about health care and huge portions of the economy – um, there's no reason to think that that should be an immediate decision, right? We should be able to snap a switch on and off. I mean, this is really a, our system generally because of the separation of powers system that we have in place, right, is designed to lead us towards a more moderate place, but slowly. Yeah. And so gridlock, uh, you know, is going to be the default outcome of that. Um, and, you know, that's something, you know, people have always been mad when the system didn't do what they wanted it to do, Um Gridlock is usually pretty good if you're on the side of uh, the status quo. Um, and uh, I think if we think about the longer term and working towards, you know, a, a solution, that's going to put us in a better place. Now, But that's hard to do because, again, yeah. we're used to things moving really fast. True. Everything's instant. Um, yeah. Democracy is not instant. Uh, it doesn't make great decisions fast necessarily. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, on the radio today, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guest this morning is Andrew Rudolevich. We had Thomas Spath, uh, co-founder of the Institute for C- Civility and Government, and Matt Modell, assistant professor of psychology at the University of Illinois in Chicago, on the phone but alas, our phone line has gone dead. And so Andrew and I here in the <laughs> studio are going to persevere. Um, Andrew Rulevich is the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College, and we're talking about civility in government, um, civil discourse, can we still do it? And it's uh, a big challenge and hard to do. We had been planning to take uh, listener calls at this juncture in the program, but b- as I said, the phone lines are dead, so we are going to continue the conversation between me and Andrew and um, and hope it will be engaging for you for the next half hour. So, uh, I, I mean, what does civility look like? I mean, how can we express strong views and have it not sort of drift off into name-calling and mm-hmm. um, image bashing. Well, let me, uh, because I'm a professor, I'm going to veer back into yeah, history ahead. if I could. Uh, so if you think about, uh, so James Madison, you know, when he's writing uh, his share of the Federalist Papers, uh, writes Federalist 10, which is this impassioned defense of why uh, a democracy can work. Uh, you know, if you think about the context of the late 1700s, you know, there wasn't a lot of historical experience where democracy had proved particularly successful and certainly not on a big scale, right? There are a few, uh, you know, Greek city-states and you had a a brief period of the Roman Republic and, you know, the framers certainly, you know, were were educated people. They knew about this. Um, That's what was on their library shelves. Um, But, you know, you didn't have uh, other role models necessarily and certainly not on the scale. Remember, the United States physically was a huge country. Uh, even in the 1790s before it expands westward. So, 
you really do have, I think, a um, you know, he, he's trying to make the case that, well, yeah, we could have a democracy. Well, how do we do it? We do it in a couple of ways. One, we have this representative democracy. And so, you know, we have uh, diversity within the different parts of the country, and they're going to elect members of Congress. And those members of Congress will therefore have to uh, talk things out in order to get things through. That's part one, is sort of structural. Secondly, he actually says, well, the size is good because it actually means that people won't be able to organize uh, on a national level because, look, the crazy people in New Hampshire, there are no crazy people in Maine, but crazy people in New Hampshire and the crazy people in Georgia or wherever, right, will not be able to get together. Um, And, you know, so they can be crazy in their own little community, fine, but that's going to get sort of filtered out as you rise to the levels of government. So what went wrong with that? (laughs) Well, Facebook went wrong with that in a certain way, right? Uh, Mass media uh, begins to give people the ability to uh, organize on a national scale. And you see that in little ways prior to the Civil War, the uh, the abolitionist and for that matter, the anti-abolitionist movements uh, that arise. But it's really – you know, you have the telegraph and the radio and TV and, uh, you know, national uh, telecommunications rising in a pretty rapid fashion um, in a way that political actors, of course, take advantage of. Um, but, you know, as you get into the social media world, you know, there's no, uh, you know, there's no filter, which is exciting in a way because anybody can go on Twitter and say something and, you know, and make a difference. Now, if they're making a difference in a positive way, that's great. Uh, if, in fact, uh, what goes viral is uh, – you know, a falsehood or a personal attack, we might think that's less good for the process, but it certainly can be picked up on very quickly. So the ability to organize, you know, our crazy people in New Hampshire and Georgia or where have you, you know, that's really easy now. Yeah, it's it, not it, it, it's not a challenge. And so, you know, the structural arguments of Federalist 10, uh, you know, Madison didn't foresee, you know, social media. Uh, he was a very smart guy, but he didn't really um, – you know, see the country as being as unified in a communicative sense, I think, uh, as it has become. Yep. Um, and so there are great, you know, advantages to our, obviously our being able to communicate at the speed of light with each other, uh, you know, in the country and around the world. But there's also, you know, uh, you know, that does tend to elevate uh, discourse, good or bad, you know, in a way that wouldn't have been possible uh, originally. So, um you know, we run again into this sort of difficulty of not wanting to, to censor. We want all those voices out there. We want, though, there to be, you know, a trusted forum for, uh, you know, those arguments to be hashed out. And to some degree, the press does that. Um, to some degree, Congress does that even today. Um, but I do think they, uh, you know, members of Congress are very electorally sensitive. They will listen to what people on the ground level tell them. What are their constituents saying? If they're saying, you know, hate the other side, they will hate the other side. Uh, And so if we are able, I think, to, again, I I keep returning to the grassroots and to the local level, the work of the League of Women Voters and other civic organizations that really, I think, need to to work hard at rebuilding civic capital in a patient way. Um, Matt talked about education. Um, You know, I think uh, I'll put a little plug in for – for Bowdoin, if I could, uh, which created a, a civics video series um, uh, a year and a bit ago. It's great. Uh, well, thank you. Um, so there's 15 episodes that are uh, on the Bowdoin website. Uh, it's a series called Founding Principles. And the idea is to at least get uh, more widely available, you know, this sense of, you know, well, what is the Constitution supposed to do? You know, how is it created? 
uh, how does government work? And so, you know, if you go to bowden.edu slash founding principles, uh, you get a little message from uh, George Mitchell, uh, former uh, Senate Majority Leader from the great state of Maine and uh, Bowdoin graduate, uh, you know, talking about uh, how he sees uh, the importance of civic discourse. And I think, you know, the message of the series overall, obviously it talks about a lot of specifics in terms of the structure of government, uh, but really, uh, you know, pushes the idea that uh, discourse can be uh, emotional, but you need to listen. Uh, And you need to be willing to take that in. Big Uh, part of it. Yeah. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guest in the studio this morning is Andrew Rudolevich, the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. We're talking about civil discourse. Can we still do it? We've got a... um, uh, telephone technology issue today, We, but we're anxious to take your questions. If you want to email them to news at weru.org, we'll try to put your question on the air. Um, and we're, uh, So please uh, send in your questions, and we'll try to get them answered by Andrew. But I want to continue the discussion here today and talk a little mm-hmm. bit about, um, I mean, what what actually does it look like? Are there some rules that we can give people? Because, I mean, ba- sort of what you're saying is that whether it's in our physical community or in our online community, it's actually the norms that we embrace in that community that regulate whether the conversation is mm-hmm. civil or incivil. In some communities, they may actually like it better to be angry and vituperative. But if we really want it to be civil and want it to be respectful of all voices, we have to establish those norms in our own communities. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what is it? It's just a smile and a soft voice? Or, I mean, like, how do we... Well, that doesn't hurt. Uh, <laughs> but it's... Uh, no, I think... Well, I think there are a couple things I would say. Uh, yeah, one is that it does help if you have a sense of... Let's stick to government uh, here, you know, how government works, Uh, you know, what can it actually do? Uh, And so that helps to sort of constrain demands that might be unreasonable otherwise, right? So if somebody is demanding something that just simply can't happen, that leads pretty quickly to, you know, disillusionment, but also sort of frustration. Um, uh, So I think that's one area where civic education might help, you know, Um, you know, I would, hope in our our school system but certainly you know again that's one of the nice things about this explosion of the communications uh world is that you can get information lots of places um yeah there's lots of information available uh so that's one issue i think another is you know a certain set of ground rules that you you know sort of grew up with uh you know in terms of treating others as you would like to be treated with regards to just uh, you can have i think a moderator uh you know in a discussion forum who is going to be careful about, uh, you know, just sort of, again, not necessarily the, uh, um, well, I would say the tone of the discourse in the sense of avoiding personal insult. Because, again, I think there, so there's two related pieces. One is that we've, uh, I think one alarming thing about the discourse today is that we've sort of lost the ability to agree what the facts are, right? And so we've, you know, the United States has always sort of prided itself on being, you know, 
on the forefront of science. We believe, you know, that we can make technological process, uh, progress rather. But uh, that's done through, you know, a certain set of facts, a basic agreement. And uh, the late uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to say, well, you're very much entitled to your opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. Uh, and so one thing that can be useful is getting, you know, at the beginning of a conversation is getting the ground the, basically the, the foundational facts on the table. Um, and then you might even argue a little bit about what that would be because obviously that's an important agenda-setting power if you say, yep. well, the facts are this. Um, but, you know, we're seeing a little bit of that struggle if you think about the uh, the arguments over the Congressional Budget Office and how it's uh, analyzing different health care oh, Or the right? census even if you want to talk sure. about evidence gathering. Here. Sure. So evidence gathering, you know, has always been actually a really important thing uh, that uh, – you know, the governments at all levels have done, but the federal government, the Department of Education started as a, uh, you know, only to do research right. about what educational processes actually worked so the different state and local governments could, could adapt those. So, but I think facts and then, you know, literally politeness, I do think <laughs> matters in these conversations. Yep. And we do have a, a listener question emailed in from um, Nancy. She's asking, can you talk about efforts to change net neutrality and how that could affect the future of online discourse? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, there's been a lot of argument uh, between different Internet providers and different people in the Internet uh, ecosystem, I guess, uh, about how this work. Net neutrality more generally, of course, has to do with how the people who sort of control the physical, you know, Infrastructure. The infra- yeah, yep. thank you. The infrastructure to the you know the online world uh, have to treat those who want to put content into that online world, um, and so these aren't all you know. It's not like big companies against small companies necessarily. You know, we're talking about you know Xfinity versus Google or versus Amazon or versus Netflix, the people who really use a lot of bandwidth, right, um, and who want to be to make sure that an Xfinity doesn't say, well, we like you. Uh, Hulu instead of Netflix because you pay us more for access to our bandwidth. Um, and so that's an argument that the Obama administration had basically decided that there would be, you know, no ability of these gatekeepers to uh, discriminate uh, in the marketplace against any particular. Right? Others say, well, that's interfering in the free market in a way that's problematic. Um, Is there po- the potential for the yeah. loss of net neutrality to skew the discourse in to one partisan side or the other or towards one set of yeah. facts or the other? That's a good question because, as I say, it's not – you know, there's lots of uh, – a lot of issues where you can say, well, it's big business against uh, Main Street businesses or, you know, the Wall Street against Main Street. Uh, this is less that argument, I think, unless – but, I mean, I think the, the – you know, the scenario that people are most nervous about is that these big companies, you know, shut off access unless you can really pay. Yeah. And that could shut off the kind of grassroots access. My guess is that there would be room at that point for other players to get into the market and to get, you know, uh, online anyway. I think the the online horse is pretty well out of the barn. But, yeah. uh, but it's a concern, you know, because you do have – I mean, the internet, you know, started as a, you know, a government defense research project and it's sort of expanded now into, of course, a massive commercial enterprise and people want – to, to skew that market towards them. Uh, and and to so I do think we need to be vigilant about that. Absolutely. We have another uh, listener question emailed in from Ken. And by the way, if you have a question that you'd like to have answered on the air, you can email it to news at org, and we'll um, ask it on the show today. This one is from Ken, 
and he asks, what role do you see for efforts such as the nonviolent communication works, workshops and makeshift coffee house and others around the state um, to influence for the better uh, civil discourse? Well, I think any kind of conversation uh, starting process like that is good. Uh, I do think it can be tricky in that, you know, again, the, the people who attend uh, these kinds of things are a little bit self-selecting. Often, um, they're the people who care the most, and they're the and so I think with all best intentions, you can wind up, uh, you know, preaching to a choir. I happen to think a fairly enlightened choir in this case, but still, um, you know, how do you? Yeah, you know, we have we run at these issues. If, if we have freedom of assembly, how do we force people to uh, assemble when they don't want to? <laughs> uh, I don't want you know. Uh, Matt or Thomas mentioned earlier, right? They, they don't want to talk to each other. You can't pay them to talk to each other. So how do you make? How do you uh, have these incentives? And I think at the local level, maybe again, where you can sort of move it away from you know the very angry national conversation to local issues where there could be more possibility of civil conversation. Then you know as a you know, a stepping point to uh, these larger issues. Um, you know, we don't have to agree on everything. Uh, I do think we need, in fact, that would be potentially problematic. Uh, you know, but I do think we need to disagree in a way uh, that is, you know, less likely to shut off future conversation, right. I guess. And right. that, I think, is what these kinds of exercises, these exercises are, are valuable because they do uh, get us in the practice of conversation. And hopefully, you know, they are able to bring in people, um, you know, to argue with in a certain sense. Yeah. yeah. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guest this morning is Andrew Rudolevich, the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. And we're talking about civil discourse. Can we still do it? Um, our phone lines are dead, but we are taking listener questions. You can email them to news at weru.org, and we'll put your question on the air. Um, you know, we can sort of talk about spreading norms and civil discourse at the community level, in our personal relations, in our interpersonal relations, you know, and those of us who are committed to it in our online um, communities as well. What can we do to ask more of our leaders and other civic institutions? I, I mean, clearly there are some, and I'll just name Breitbart as an example, that may profit from incivility and um, extreme views. And there. I mean, is there anything that we can do to make that less acceptable? And what can we demand from our leaders? Well, the media are interesting because we've had sort of a <clears throat> a cycle or a full circle in American politics where the first American newspapers really were party uh, organs. They were, you know, funded by and uh, designed to promote uh, the political parties. An exaggeration you know, we, of views oh, yeah. and no, I mean, if you, uh, hyperbole and everything uh, else. One of the fun things that's online, if you go to YouTube, is type in uh, TV commercials from the election of 1800. Um, and it's, you know, people taking the different uh, pamphlets of the time from that election, attacking Thomas Jefferson or attacking John Adams, uh, and putting it in sort of today's, uh, you know, negative ad sort of template, you know, so with the gloomy music and the John Adams will ruin <laughs> America, you know. Um, and it's, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the the rhetoric is all absolutely accurate, right? It's taken literally from the uh, campaign brochures of the day. Uh, and it is <laughs> pretty scary stuff. Um, so again, that's not that's not new. Uh, what happened over time is sort of the development of journalism as a profession and the idea that there should be an ideal of journalism that uh, tried to find objectivity. 
Um, and this is, you know, not every outlet everywhere was committed to this, but you sort of in the late 19th century with the rise of muckrakers and, uh, and then I think settling into the 20th century where you have, um, you know, uh, you know, a rise again of this norm that there should be an effort to, you know, produce all the news that's fit to print, right, from the New York Times. Perspective. But there always were, you know, magazines and newspapers that appealed to a particular ideological wing of one party or the other. Uh, and, you know, it, what's interesting in a way is, again, this broadcasting has, has veered away. Local newspapers are finding it very difficult to stay in business. Um, you know, most cities no longer have the kind of competition they used to. Um, Among you know, papers, at the local level, right? yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the Chicago Sun Times is trying to be sold to the Chicago Tribune, yeah, right. And the you know my old hometown paper, the Boston Herald, right, is turning into you know it's really a shadow of what it was. And even the Globe is having difficulties in Boston. So, um, you know, I do think actually uh, buying local newspapers and subscribing is one thing we can do yeah. um, because otherwise we are, are sort of subject only to this you know national forum. Um, but the uh, yeah, but now so with the uh, news outlets becoming again effectively partisan outlets, uh, you know we have sort of come back to where we were, uh, and we've lost something there. I think that's true. So I, mean, I think one way is you put your money where your mouth is, right? You need and to buy the ones support yeah. newspapers that, or you know, or watch programs that are trying to present a reasoned view. Um, and thinking and, about Breitbart, I mean, it's back to the question of the chicken and the egg. Like, mm-hmm. did does that seem like a bigger phenomenon because it was pushed out more strongly, or does it seem like a big phenomenon because it was pushed by people who really had a, a desire to hear politics framed in that well, way? Well, again, both, and you know, the mainstream media, uh, you know, as it existed as sort of this institution, um, you know, always frustrated people who didn't feel that they were being covered. Uh, and so, you know, the uh, explosion of, you know, the ability to have these alternate media outlets was a godsend. Yep. Right? Again, for people at uh, mostly at both extremes, and we should say, you know, the the newspapers. If you look at the coverage of the 1950s and early 60s, you know, it was, it was more civil certainly than we have now, but it was shutting things out of the conversation. Yeah, you, know, uh, you know, the civil rights movement for one right. thing. Uh, you know, the gentlemen's agreement uh, effectively that kept politics in Washington civil in the 40s and 50s was the agreement not to think about civil rights very hard, yep. and that. You know, broke apart, obviously, and there's a great benefit to that, right? To the, but of course, that too, then you know, including many more voices in the national conversation, makes that a much more fragmented conversation, a much richer conversation, but one that people have a harder time adjusting to. Um, and so, you know, something we haven't talked about much is sort of the explosion of participation. Um, you know, people who had not been represented. And I would include here, you know, if you talk to people about the 2016 election, probably right up here in the second district of Maine, you know, I would include, you know, rural, you know, former mill workers, uh, people who felt that, yeah, I've been left out too. Uh, I want to be part of this conversation and I can do that, you know, through my participation in this 2016 campaign. Um, And that I think, you know, so again, we have many more voices in the conversation. That's a great thing. Um, So how do we uh, work our way back to, uh, making sure that those voices are respectful of each other and learning from each other rather than just shouting at each other. You uh, asked about uh, our elected officials. Um, I think, you know, again, there's a certain sense of a market-based mechanism. We can, you know, put our money where our mouth is or our time where our mouth is with regards to media. We can do that with the elected officials too. Um, You know, going and screaming at them and throwing things at them doesn't work all that well, I think, as a method of persuasion. Um, but elected officials, you know, 
here's a, a dirty secret. They're actually pretty smart on the, for the most part. They're, you know, uh, not evil people if you meet them. <laughs> you right. know? But they are working within an institutional structure that we have created for them in a certain sense. Uh, granted, they perpetuate in certain ways, but that we have created rules. They work that system really well. So we need to change the rules at Lolo. We need to demand different things. I think we need to demand more accountability. Uh, for example, I think Congress needs to ask more questions of the presidency. This is uh, regardless of the, office, regardless yeah, of the, of the occupant holder. of the office. Yeah. I think Congress has done a pretty poor job of overseeing uh, the actions of the executive branch uh, for years. Uh, I think we need to ask you know, more questions of our uh, – you know, all aspects of our elected leadership yeah. in terms of, you know, if we actually, you know, if they thought there was a uh, an electoral mandate for civility, we would have it. Yep. They don't see that. Yep. I mean, with uh, the announcement over the last few days of John McCain's illness, I mm-hmm. was replaying some clips from the 2008 election where he, um, you know, stood up for Barack Obama and said, you know, we disagree on mm-hmm. lots and lots and lots of stuff, but he's a good family man. And uh, Right. Um, right. And that's been, you know, that's a, a complicating aspect, right? The the effort to sort of delegitimize your opposition. Right. Um, you know, not even a, not even American, not a person. Um, yeah. And McCain, I have to say this, I mean, if you go back, uh, Michael Lewis uh, of, you know, Big Short and, you know, very rich and famous now. Uh, 1996, he wrote a book about the political campaign of 1996, which I think he thought was going to be about Bill Clinton. It turns out being about John McCain, yeah. who was running for president for the first time way back then, uh, supporting Bob Dole uh, eventually, of course. And uh, McCain actually turns out to be sort of the hero of that book. Yeah, funny. Yeah. We're almost out of time, so I want to give you just one quick shot to say your last parting comment, and then we'll do the sign-off. <laughs> Well, I guess my last parting comment would be that uh, Ben Franklin, at the end of the Constitutional Convention, you know, walks out of the hall in Philadelphia. And, Famous uh, quote, yeah. Yeah, he's asked, you know, by somebody in the crowd, you know, well, what have you guys done? You know, it's, after all, it was all in secret. Uh, and he says, well, you know, what have you created? And he says, well, a republic. And then he adds, if you can keep it. And I think, uh, you know, what we are faced with now is keeping that republic, uh, you know, in that the republic that the framers designed, you know, uh, really does not work without informed participation and debate. And so, you know, I think our debate needs to continue. I don't want people to be quiet, but I do want them to listen to each other. Yep. Well, we're um, out of time this morning. Thank you, Andrew, for being our guest. Um, our guests overall were Thomas Spath, co-founder of the Institute for Civility and Government, and Matt Modell, assistant professor of psychology at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Regrettably, we lost the phone line partway through the show, and they weren't able to participate for the second half. But we did have Andrew Rulevich in the studio for the whole time, and he was great, the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer this morning at WERU, and thank you to our listeners. We'll be continuing this conversation on civil discourse in person on Wednesday, July 26th, beginning at 5.30 p.m. at Pat's Pizza in Ellsworth. If you're in the Down East area, please join us there. Free pizza and a good conversation. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can also email us at downeast at lwvme.org. We'll be taking next month off in August. We'll see you back here in September. Thanks very much.